when you guys said ice climbing on your mountaineering, you know, schedule, I thought you guys meant like real ice climbing. But he kind of said, oh, let me see one of those axes for a second. Or let me see your tool. And he took it and then he stuck it in the snow behind him. And I thought he was just going to adjust it and give it back to me. But he just left it there. And then he started lowering me down with only one ice axe. Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Today, we have a pretty interesting episode and kind of a cool coincidence. If you remember from Thursday, uh, George Cronus was talking about, uh, this. that was a Throwback Thursday episode. George Cronus has done all kinds of things. He, he did an expedition one time in a volcano, and the person that rigged up all those lines and all that safety equipment was the guest we're having on today, Fred Shewitt. Uh, Fred specializes in zipline rigging and, uh, you know, slackline rigging and any sort of building of contraptions over extreme environments that's going to involve people, you know, ziplining across or something. So this is what Fred does. He does a lot of ice climbing and climbing um, instruction and tutorials and classes and whatnot and expeditions as well. But his specialty are these kind of unique things. And so today he's just going to be telling us some stories from his experiences with this stuff. It's, it's pretty cool. Um, something I never really thought of with uh, the you know ability to, to get into adventure sports as a career. Um, but Fred's doing it and it sounds like he's having a really good time doing it. And he's been doing it for over 20 years. And all his contact information in case, you know, you have a, a really special zip lining um, job you need Fred to do. Give him a call. Give him a ring. Uh, all his contact information, all the websites you can find him is in the show notes. But before we jump in, I would love to take a minute to draw your attention to a podcast that I think you might enjoy from one of our sponsors, Expedia. Out Travel the System is the name of the show. And now that it's in its third season, the show has a central mission to expire and inform you about travel. That can mean anything from building your own bucket list to taking concrete steps to that next trip when the time is right. The podcast does a really good job about finding people who are incredibly passionate about travel, including a commercial airline pilot, a woman who travels pretty much year-round, and a man who wants to have visited every country in the world by the end of this year, pandemic or not. When it comes to inspiration, Out Travel the System is also giving a voice to people who love their hometown and want to share those places with potential travelers. So take a moment, pull out your podcast player, and pull up Out Travel the System. Like, subscribe, whatever you do, so that you can listen to the most recent episodes coming out. All right, let's get into Fred's story. Frederick Shewitt, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. No, it's awesome to have you on. I can't wait to get into it. If you don't mind me asking, where are you coming from today, and where is home, if those aren't the same places? Yeah, uh, home for me and my home office is in Alora, Ontario, and uh, that's kind of where I run my business, and yeah, we have uh, we actually run our office out of uh, a, a large church that we bought, purchased and turned into our home and office. A church of a different kind now. It is, yes. Different cathedrals, rock cathedrals. What's in Alora? Uh, so Alora is, um, it's a very small town. It's very touristy. It's been called the most beautiful town in one of the most beautiful towns in Canada. 
It has a very quaint downtown with a park, Central Park, with a lot of statues around town. A lot of artists are working out of Alora, so pottery, blowing glass, and art. So very touristy in the summertime. Um, we have a couple, the, one of the Heritage Rivers, uh, the Grand River, runs right through Alora. It also is covered with cliffs, so there's cliffs on either side and a giant waterfall right downtown. And then there's another gorge. So there's all these like cliffs and gorges and big, beautiful bridges over the water, um, nice vistas. And there is some rock climbing and ice climbing uh, to be had on the cliffs as well. And, and kayaking is really big in Alora, especially in the spring when the meltwater comes. So a lot of kayakers will be coming to Alora as well to play in the rapids. Wow. Now, did you grow up there? Sorry, I, I grew up in, in Guelph, which is probably about 20 minutes uh, south of Alora. But I was able to travel here on weekends or ride my bike maybe about 20 kilometers or so to Alora. And uh, as I was growing up, and I did quite a few adventures in Alora. I know what you're doing now with uh, with volcanoes and with climbing and zip lining. But w- where did it start? What was your adventure sports background? Were you were you from a family that was adventurous or did you have to discover it on your own? I kind of uh, just I just was adventurous as a child. So growing up. I was kind of like the kid that was like always catching snakes and frogs in the swamp, coming home all dirty and muddy. And that led to more, you know, exploring wilderness areas and stuff like that. My dad would take us, took took us on a hike to uh, a conservation area in Rockwood um, once and it had a lot of cliffs and rocks. And that really was exciting for me. So for my birthday, whenever I had a birthday, my request was he takes me and my friends on a big hike somewhere. This would be, oh, wow. I'd be really young, maybe eight years old. That made me request like a day hike with his cliffs and rocks and some caves and do some really exciting stuff. That was kind of my birthday request every year from my dad. And that just, and that was kind of, yeah, I, that was my passion to, to do that. So, and at a young age, my dad would probably around like eight to 10, maybe to 12. My dad would just drop me and my friend off in Rockwood Conservation Area. Uh, which is a, a beautiful conservation area, kind of wilderness-like, uh, at least at that time. Um, a lot of cliffs and rivers and um, rock formations there. And he would just leave us there for five hours, and we would just scramble and explore and go in caves. And then he'd just come back and pick us up later after dinner thing. And so that, that was kind of, that was just exploring. So that that's how it all started for me, really. That kind of got my passion going. And by 12, I was starting to ride my bicycle there. So my friends and I, or I would just go by myself sometimes. I'd ride my bike about 20 kilometers to this conservation area and explore. That is fantastic. So when, when did it start getting into the climbing and, and some of those other disciplines? Was it just a natural progression? It, it was um, natural progression because there's all these cliffs in Rockwood. And there were some cliffs in Guelph, too, smaller ones that I explored. And close to my house, there's some like smaller cliffs. Um and uh, it naturally, as you explore cliffs, then you're like, well, maybe I could climb this one or this one doesn't look as aggressive. Maybe I could scramble up this and then you would do it and you'd be like, that was kind of fun and scary. But well, maybe if I can do this one, maybe I can do that one. And it kind of progressed that way. Um, and I think around, I don't know how old we were. We were quite young. We, we kind of, we also did winter camping really young. I don't know how, maybe 12, 13, we were winter camping. Um, in the conservation area, in the wilderness areas, it actually wasn't in the conservation, but beside it, there's more like kind of natural land that's owned by a university that no one goes to. And we actually went winter camp in there when we were like 12 or 13. And we started, we brought a rope one time and we started to lower each other down like cliffs with the rope. 
and it wasn't anything special. It was a rope from a hardware store. My friend had in his garage and we just tied a loop and put our foot in it and held on to the rope and we lowered Holy each other. <laughs> it was, it was a bit crazy. And, and, you know, and we, we would wrap the rope around a tree or two for friction. So we wouldn't be just bare hand in it. The trees would have friction on them. And then as we, as the person got over the edge, the other people would let rope out and it would run around the tree and that would create the friction, be the friction device to kind of lower each other. And, uh, yeah, and it kind of started that way. Uh, we kind of learned early on, on, on actually that first trip, we started doing that, that there's a lot of danger involved because, uh, I decided, I, again, it scared the, it scared me to bits. So I was totally scared, but I wanted to do it cause I felt like it was scary, but in my mind it was safe enough. We could do it. Um, but we didn't measure the rope and then I decided to do a bigger cliff and the rope wasn't long enough. Oh boy. So you can imagine a bunch of kids lowering each other off the cliff, and now I'm on this huge cliff, and the rope's not long enough to get me to the ground. So the, the story goes, I had no idea. As they're lowering me, I'm about halfway down this 80-foot cliff, and I hear, how close are you to the ground? And I'm kind of like, uh, why are they asking this question? This is halfway, you know? I'm 40 feet from the ground. I'm halfway down. They're like, okay. And then they keep, I keep moving. And then I get another call. All right, they call down later, like, how close are you to the ground now? And they're, I'm like, I don't know, 20 feet. And then, oh, okay. And then I keep moving. I'm like, why do they keep asking that? It never dawned on me that maybe the rope wasn't long enough because it looked like a long rope. And then they stop one more time and they go, how close are you to the ground now? And I'm like, uh, maybe 10 feet. And then I just fell. They just dropped me. Oh, my God. <laughs> But luckily, I was only 10 feet. Unfortunately, the ground was frozen, so it kind of oh. hitting the ground kind of hurt, but it, I was not expecting them to let me go. So I kind of landed a bit on my kind of hit the ground on my feet and then fell back on my back, which was good. I didn't hurt anything, really. Just I was kind of surprised it happened. Um, yeah. And that was kind of one. That was and the last one. Like Wow, I really love this. I should do this for a living. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was kind of like, okay, that was fun. And again, I didn't get hurt. So, and we moved on to, I think, the next winter camping trip. I think we were bored because all these adventurous stuff happened in the winter. Another winter camping trip, we set up a zip line, tension zip line over a gully in the same kind of area. And again, we didn't have ropes long enough. So we tied two ropes together. And uh, we, which is not a good idea on a zip line because you're has to go over the knot which it won't go over so and we knew that but we figured you know what we'll do is we'll build a big pile of snow there was a lot of snow you know that you know 35 years ago whenever that was three years ago so we said make a big pile of snow and when you get to the knot you'll let go and you fall into the big pile of snow because we were about 40 feet off the ground when we jumped onto the zip line so it's pretty high um, and of course I was the first to go. I don't know why I was just as scared as everyone else, but I guess I had the guts to do it. And the rope stretched so much. We didn't expect that because we're kids. We had never seen a zip line operated before. The rope stretched a lot because we didn't pull it very tight or we, as tight as we could pull it. And then and it was just a hold on zip line. It was just like a, like a, the handlebar. And, uh, the knot came so fast and I was so scared. There's no way I was going to let go. So I hit the knot and then the the momentum of the zip line hitting the knot threw me off of the zip line. So I'm flying through the air, flipping it up and down, like doing cartwheels in the sky. And then apparently I bang, I kind of landed upside down on the far cliff and then fell into the pile of snow we put, we built there. 
And again, I didn't get hurt. I was, I kind of woke up. I never, I, I, I don't know if I blacked out or something, but I never laying there in the snow. I don't remember, I kind of remember a bit of flying through the air. And I just remember laying in the snow and looking up at the tree branches and being like, I don't feel any pain or warm, like right. blood. Does this arm work? I'm like, yeah, oh, okay. Does this arm work? That works. Does this leg work? Yeah, okay. Does that leg work? I'm like, hey, I get up. I'm like, that didn't hurt at all. Who's next? And everyone's like, no way. <laughs> and uh, one, one, I just remember when I was laying in the snow, I remember one kid was yelling, he's dead. He's dead. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and then the other kid was yelling, that was awesome. That was awesome. So after those two experiences, um, both of the, which went wrong, but not luckily no one got injured. I started to realize that we needed to do things safer and started to look a little more into how to do things safe, I guess. Um, and, uh, when I went to grade nine, there was a mountaineering book in my school library. Cause it was an old mountaineering book from like early 1900s. Cause the school was a very old school and had this old mountaineering book from the 1940s or something in there. And uh, that was like the book I signed out all the time. And I learned everything I could from the book. And, uh, and that kind of, um, it slowly progressed from there, learning different skills through that old mountaineering book and very old skills that don't exist anymore. It was pretty interesting to start that way and progress. And then eventually when I was 16, I took some, some climbing courses through a college. And that's when I kind of really, by then I was doing stuff kind of safe, but not safe enough still. But I had built my own climbing harness and stuff. Oh my <laughs> and, gosh. Uh, like I only seen, I only saw climbing, like the, in the book, they showed you how to tie your own climbing harness. Like they didn't have climbing harnesses back in the forties. You tied your own. So I kind of just made my own, but then I kind of went a little too far and I was able to get one climbing harness eventually from a climbing store. It took a long time to even know where to get stuff because there was no internet. Um, I would be looking in a phone book and I'd call my friends and no one would know where to get climbing gear. But I knew it existed because I seen it on TV or heard about it. And Toronto did have some places, but I wasn't from Toronto and I didn't have any access to get to Toronto, really. So eventually someone gave me a Mountaineer, a, a Mountain Equipment Co-op mail order catalog. And that was like, I don't know, I must have looked at that book every day, just flipping through the pages of all their technical clothing and all their ropes and carabiners and all the stuff that I've, some stuff I've never even seen before. Um, so eventually I, I got my mom to drive me to Toronto. I saved up some money and I blew tons of money in at Mountain Equipment Co-op and I bought lots of stuff. And I got one climbing harness. And then I didn't really see the danger of sewing another one with my mom's sewing machine. So then I made another har climbing harness for my friends to climb with because you need kind of need two people if you're doing top rope climbing. So I'd sewed another harness on my mom's sewing machine, which was obviously very dangerous, but I didn't know any better. <laughs> And no one else wow. seemed to think it was a bad idea. Everyone else thought it was a great idea. So I just took my harness and I saw how they build it. It was much simpler back then. It was a, like a diaper style harness, they call it. A waist belt with two, a leg loop that flips through the crotch and clips of the carabiner. So it's much simpler. And I kind of just went to like a, a fabric store and bought webbing strap and and started sewing it on my mom's sewing machine and made, made another harness. And the scary part was that... Uh, I couldn't get an aluminum buckle for it. So my dad had a tool belt in the basement that looked pretty heavy duty. And I took the, the buckle off of the tool belt and put it on the climbing harness, which again was a bad idea. 
but it worked and nobody <laughs> nobody got hurt and we used it for like quite a while doing really basic climbing like top rope climbing again not building proper anchors or not knowing how to i had like hay bale pulleys at the top that i got from the hardware store it, it was really it was pretty shoddy <laughs> if i saw someone doing that now like wow uh, i've never seen anything that primitive before um but yeah so that's how we kind of got started and and but when the time i turned 16 i had acquired some climbing gear and i took a course and then i learned that you know, I shouldn't sew stuff myself and it's better just to tie the knots and the web in and all that stuff. So I kind of got a much safer practice after that. And then I, and I also learned about more where to get more equipment and, and people to climb with and stuff. So, um, things took off very quickly at, at 16 for me. I believe not long after you, that you got the, the nickname of one ax Fred. Was that true? I, and if so, what, what, how, how did that happen? Because that's the name of your company, One Axe Pursuits, or uh, One Axe. You're kind of known as that. Could, could, could you tell us that? Yeah. So, um, so after 16, I took the mount. I took some rock climbing courses. Got really experienced right quickly, and um, did got into ice climbing right away. And bought some ice climbing equipment. Um, and then I kind of booked myself on a mountaineering course for when I was 18. So. Um, no one else, people would say they'd go with me and in the end, it was just me. So I'm like, I'm going anyway. Cause I, this is my passion. I wanted to do this. So I kind of booked a trip out West. I went out by myself and joined the mountaineering course there. Um, and on the course, I was probably the most experienced person there, even though I was the youngest, I was only eight, just had turned 18 or was it just 18, but I was the most experienced person there in the sense of knowledge and ropes and also i was eating this stuff up like crazy so i was buying books and reading about stuff so on the course i had already done technical ice climbing and climbed some pretty hard rock climbs and on the course on day seven of the course we were doing mount or um we were doing ice climbing on the course and in my head i had envisioned a thousand foot ice climb on the side of a mountain or something and uh it wasn't quite that spectacular it was still beautiful and it was about a 200 foot ice climb um, but it wasn't totally vertical. It was maybe 80 degrees or something, maybe 70 to 80 degrees. So, and it was about 200 feet. So they, we, we started at the top and they lowered us down the side of this glacier about 200 feet as long as, long as the rope was. And then they would leave it. They kind of left you there and then you had to climb back up to them. And they belayed, they pulled the rope tight as you climb back up. So right before it was my turn to go, I was kind of like, I talked to the guy and, and by then we had a relationship already. So I was kind of joking with him like, oh, when you guys said ice climbing on your mountaineering, you know, schedule, I thought you guys meant like real ice climbing, like not less than vertical ice climbing. Right, and the right. guy, was, this guy started laughing at me. So, and then he's like, right before he lowered me down, we had old like technical mountaineering axes too. They weren't really technical axes they have now, but he kind of said, oh, let me see one of those axes for a second. Or let me see your tool. And he took it and then he stuck it in the snow behind him. And I thought he was just going to adjust it and give it back to me, but he just left it there. And then he started lowering me down with only one ice axe. So uh, that was kind of the, you know, accept the challenge kind of thing. If, you, if this is too easy for you, this will make it harder. I'll take one of your ice axes away. And he lured me down the whole way. And then I, I climbed up with only the one ice axe. And from the way we were, we were practicing some other mountaineering skills somewhere else in the glacier. And you could look across and see the people ice climbing. So when I was climbing with only one ice axe, everyone was like, what's going on? He, where's his other ice axe? 
like, why is he going up with only one ice axe? And why is he making it look so easy? He's like, because a lot of people were really struggling. If you had never ice climbed before, it's kind of like throwing you, just throwing you in the deep end, really. Like they lure you down. You got to get back up. So there's no one down there to coach you. So they talked a little bit of how to do it. And they just lower you down when you're by yourself. So, but I had ice climbed before, so I was able to go up quite quickly, even with one ice axe. And then everyone called me one axe after that little adventure. Um, and and it was like literally no one called me by my name on the rest of that trip. It was always hey one axe. So it was quite quite hilarious. So when I came back to Ontario, I put one axe on all my gear. So instead of writing my name or whatever, just on my hat helmet, it said one axe on it and stuff. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of the story of the name. You you go from climbing ice with one axe to walking over lava, but really your, your specialty is, is rigging and, and like zip line set up. And that's what you've been doing for, for over 20 years now. Can, can you, you know, how how did it start to grow into that? And where was the need for that to start doing these extreme kind of events almost? Yeah. So, so we started, um, my girlfriend or my wife at the time, our girlfriend at the time, wife now, we started the company 20 years ago and we started as a rock climbing company. So rock climbing, ice climbing, mountaineering. So I did, I used to do a trip on North America's third highest peak in Mexico and I'd guide a trip or two down there every, every year. Um, and then we do ice climbing and rock climbing and we added zip lines into the system as well because I was just fascinated with anything with ropes and rigging. So after the mountaineering course I did at 18, I did some more rescue light courses. So learning more rigging and pulley systems and haul systems and stuff like that. And I really liked the zip lines and I had done those starting at 13. So we started rigging these and I'd been doing some really technical zip lines um, before I started the company. So when I started the company, I just said, well, we should add that zip line that I do where we repel off the zip line into the river because it was a lot of fun. And we did it with my friends. So we added that to our, our curriculum of zip, our programs that we offered through One Axe Pursuits. And that course, we called it uh, Zip Line Extreme, which is really probably better phrased as repel extreme, but zip lining kind of gives you a ring and back then no one else ran zip lining for the public it wasn't a, it was more like adventure camps and military camps so we were the only ones that really in ontario that ran public zip lines and that and that was the one we did where you learned to repel and they repelled off the middle of the zip line down 80 feet into the river and we still offer that course today and it's still probably one of our most favorite courses that from our clients um, so i started doing that um, and then people would start needing um, people that could do special rigging for special events. Um, Richard Branson in 2004 launched Virgin Mobile and they needed a zipline expert to rig a zipline for Richard Branson downtown Toronto. Holy cow. Um, and for some reason, my name came up as the guy that can put up a, and we would set up our ziplines and take the ziplines down every day. And we still do that now. So people knew me as a guy that can rig a zipline in a couple hours running a day and take it down again so they and I could set up anywhere um so I kind of got known for that and I would get so we did the stunt for Richard Branson in 2004 and we've done just multiple tv shows and behind the scenes for movies and stunts like that with a lot of zip lines and some other like just repelling off buildings or other kind of creative stunts for uh, reality TV shows like uh, slack lines are really popular now, which is like a tension web and strap about a one inch wide and you walk on it like a tightrope. 
you, you may have seen people do this at the park or, oh, yeah. and so we, we've done that between apartment buildings for TV shows now, like multiple times. Yeah. So anything that do with like high rope rigging, it's a little bit above what your standard stunt company would be able to rig. We get these interesting calls and we'll work with the stunt people or stunt riggers, or we'll train them to do these a little bit more elaborate stunts. Um, a lot of times we'll just come in and operate it and we may train the stunt people to do it or we train them individually for face first repelling, running down a building face first or something or kicking through windows. So um, the nice thing about the church building we own is we actually have, we do a lot of stunt training on it with people that are learning to either either get better at their stunts and look, look better, like they know how to repel, but they're not looking like they're a superhero yet. So they have to look really cool doing it or kicking through windows or, you know, repelling with machine gun in their hand and stuff like that. Rip, running in. So we'll kind of do that kind of training as well. So it just kind of worked that we had our, our regular rock climbing company, but that we kept getting all these really interesting TV and movie calls and special event calls to help with the, the other rigging. Yeah. And then eventually that led to uh, rigging fireproof ropes over a pit of fire in Turkmenistan for National Geographic. And oh uh, Lauren George Karunas, which is was the host of Angry Planet, uh, sending him across in a metal suit, uh, like a reflective suit, and then lowering him down into the pit of fire. How nervous were you when uh, Richard Branson got on your zipline? Were you like, hey, this is just like any other day? Or was it, oh my yeah. gosh, I better not mess this up? <laughs> Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that helped make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. No, it was it was kind of uh, I kind of didn't know who he was really. <laughs> when I, when I first scouted it, they brought me to Toronto. I or I you know I went to Toronto and I'm on this the top of the Olympic Spirit Tower and I'm scouting Dundas Square, and they're like, "Yeah, can we want to set up the zip line here and it's and all this?" I'm like, "Yeah, we can do that." And they're like. You haven't even really seen anything. I'm like, well, I can, I can see that. I can see this. We can anchor there and there. I could have it set up in a couple hours. You know, we all, there's all the permissions and shutting the road down and everything. But as a, it, the rigging's pretty simple. We could, and she's like, you're making it look too easy, right? And I was like, well, you know, I can take some measurements and I can, you know, write it all on paper and make it look really complicated. And she's like, oh yeah, I need you to do that the next time you come out. Right. Just make it feel like it's <laughs> make it feel like really, really intense, you know, and I, of course I do that stuff as well, but I don't need to do that to say if it can go or not. So what they did then is they got the people that was hiring the, the agency from Virgin. They came out and she wanted me to be like taking measurements and using my laser light laser finder to kind of write down stuff and my protractors out there, I'm calculating angles and stuff. And it's like, yeah, we do do that, but I don't have to do it. I always do it right there on the second on the site. And it's not always necessary to even do that. Um, but anyway, so it's just funny. So I wasn't really nervous about it. I thought it was really exciting to do it. The day Richard came was interesting, though, because um, it was the middle. It was March, but it had a huge snowstorm on the day, on the, the night before. So that made it a little bit interesting because we were snow everywhere and Richard had to climb up this big tower on top of the building to do the zip line and I told them I needed 25 minutes or something to get him up and rigged and ready to go and then they said well we'll give you 15 I'm like 
what is this? This is not like a negotiation. Right. I just told you. I mean, <laughs> right. like the guy is an old, he's like, he's older now, but he was still old then. I'm like, he's in his fifties. He's not going to just run up this 150 foot tower. It's like a vertical ladders, right? It's going to be tiring. And he's in this silly suit they have him wearing. I'm like, we need time. He's going to be out of breath, right? And they also told me that there's a big timer on the LCD screen at Young and Dundas Square that's going to count down you know, from 10 at this time and they can't stall it or change it. It's like a pre-recorded movie, right? It's been put into it, but they can't. Nowadays, I'm sure they have more technology, but back then it was like, it was programmed a week ago and it's going to do this. And then after that, it's going to do like, hooray, and then play music, right? So it's like, it has to be all to the second. And But then here I am telling them I need 25 minutes and they're like, we'll give you 15. And I'm like, how's this going to work? So it was just, it was kind of a bit, I don't know if stressful. I thought it was a bit funny. I was like, one, they're going to make me look bad because Rich is not going to get up there in time. And then it's going to make look, they're going to blame me for it not happening on schedule. So as we're climbing the tower, um, there's kind of like a, Richard has like this like posse that follows him everywhere he goes. This like group of people, like a mob, like a mob. He's kind of leading it, but there's like this mob of 20, 15, 20 people that are always around him that are. Someone carries his water, someone like all these different assistants and stuff. Um, so it was interesting as we went higher up the building, eventually like people would like, like you're not needed anymore. And by the end, it was just like five people left with Richard. And at the very end, it was just Richard and I going up this tower. And then uh, I'm on a radio so they can hear me talking to Richard and I can hear them. Richard didn't have any earpiece in, I don't think. And as I was climbing the tower and I had it belayed too, because Richard's, you know, super important. So I had a, like, a belay on every ladder. So I'd clip him in, I'd climb the ladder like 30 feet or something, and I'd belay him up to me. And then we'd move across the catwalk, clip him to the next rope, I'd climb up first, I'd belay him up to me. And we kept doing that till we got to the top of the tower where I had additional staff. And halfway up, he's exhausted, right? So he's like, Frederick, I just need to take a rest. And he's like totally out of breath, but I'm like, Richard, I'm sorry, but there's no time for rest. I was like, sorry, Richard, I wanted more time to get you up the tower, but they didn't give it to me. So it's either you go up there really quick or the whole thing's going to get shot. Right. So he was like, ah, so he just he just did it. Right. He he was fine. He kind of just smiled and was like, all right, I guess we're going. So he just kind of motored his way up as fast as we could. And then right when he got to the top, he's like exhausted and it's scary up there and it's all covered in snow now. So he hugs onto this bar and he's like, just tell me when I have to go. And I have, like literally just as soon as he grabs the bar, I clip him in the back. I'm like, you got to go. So he was just like rolling his eyes again, like, oh, they jumped. And then he sat down the edge of the building and then we are the, this, the scaffolding we had set up and we had to lower him right away. And then right away it was like started counting down. So it was just, I didn't get any real time with Richard other than, you know, making him keep going, encouraging him to keep going so we could get this done on time. But uh, yeah, it went really smooth, really. But, but since Richard, I've worked with a lot of other high-end clients, uh, celebrities, and uh, even a princess inside a volcano. Um, so I've been pretty fortunate that way to meet lots. And they've all been really good, great people, actually. I haven't got anyone that's been, you know, <laughs> too full of themselves or anything. Tell, tell us about that experience, the experience of taking folks across a, a volcano. What, what was that? Where was that? How did that even come about? So after um, after I did the zip the 
the ropes after I did the rope system with George at, in Turkmenistan, the gateway to hell with National Geographic, um, that got into Guinness Book World Records in 2017, I believe. That was actually a funny story because we didn't know it was in the Guinness Book World Records, but my son got the Guinness Book World Records from Christmas from an aunt or uncle, and he flipped to the book and he found us in the book. So that was quite hilarious. No um, kidding. Wow. <laughs> so he's like, Dad, you're in the book. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he flipped through the pages. And I'm like, what? Like, how did this get in the book? No one even told us about it. Um, so it got in the Guinness Book World Records. And a woman from Brazil saw that in there. And she also saw the she actually watched a documentary on National Geographic. National Geographic and she um, she's kind of her name is Karina Oliani. She's like a female Bear Grylls in in Brazil. So she's a TV personality. She's a doctor, helicopter pilot. She's a wakeboard champion, super fit. She does all these really crazy things. Um, and she's climbed Everest twice now and K2. But nothing she's done has been a world's first. And, and she's never been the first woman ever to do anything. She's always, so she's done a lot of awesome stuff, but not a world's first, not a women's first. So she contacted me and said, I saw what you did with George in the pit of fire, and I want to be the first woman to do it. And I was like, oh, that sounds like awesome, right? We could totally do that. Right. Um, so we started planning this expedition there. And in, in the end, it, they wouldn't, uh, the government wouldn't let us film it for TV. And that's who was going to pay for her expedition. Um, so it was kind of not going to happen. So she was going to, she was willing to just give up and, and do something different, like in the sense for the TV show, go to somewhere else and, and, and not do that at all. But then I was like, well, I, I had already spent a lot of time. I got sponsorships, um, through a few different companies and actually built two new lava suits or fire suits or heat suits designed specifically for her and I to go to this pit of fire. And they were all custom built for us. And I was kind of like, well, I need to come through for these sponsors. Otherwise, no one's going to ever sponsor me again, right? And I said, I have an idea that I haven't put a lot of thought into it, but I have an idea of going and doing a world first over lava. And I said, would you be interested in using the budget you have? And we go to Ethiopia or go to another volcano and we try and do a world's first, not a woman's first, but a world's first over lava. And I said, everyone thinks it's crazy, but I think I can do it. And she was like, yes, let's do that. Like she, again, wow. she was, she didn't really, even when we were there, she didn't believe I could do it. <laughs> there was doubts even up to the moment, like the day before I was rigging it, she still had doubts, but, but it would actually be able to pull it off. But so we went to Ethiopia and I started rigging this zip line over the lava and uh, her, her main concerns were that the around the crater was all dried lava. So it's all very porous rock, but lava rock. So it's full of air bubbles and it's in layers. Like it's all kind of dries in layers. So you'd have a layer of crumbly rock. It's like creme brulee kind of thing. You could break right through it. And there's a layer and then there's another layer and there's no solid rock. So she, her, her question was, how can I actually anchor safely to this crumbly stuff right, to, right. to rig something that takes such high forces as a zip line. So that's where her doubt was. It's not that I could physically do it, but she's like, I don't think the anchors will be strong enough. So, so, how, so how did you um, do it? Yeah. So it's kind of a trade secret, but uh, <laughs> I did, I did <laughs> do it. I had lots of equipment there and I, 
I had anticipated problems, but maybe not as bad as that. That was, I did have a couple of doubts, but I was figured in my head, I was like, because I do teach mountaineering skills and I teach people how to anchor off of powder snow and really crummy snow and really bad ice and how to build anchors that can hold thousands of pounds off of snow and ice and even bad snow and ice. And I said, well, in my head, I'm like, if I can anchor off of snow and ice, I should be able to anchor off of crappy rock. So I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I, it's, it has a better consistency than ice and, and snow. So I should be able to do it. And I did bring tools to even, I had like a face shield and I did bring a small pickaxe so that I could actually chop rock and shape it and, and dig deeper to find better rock. So I kind of was like, it's just going to be a lot of labor. I think it was, for me, it was more, do I have enough time? Cause she only allowed me two days on the volcano to do this. Um, Again, partially, I think, because she did, wasn't positive I could do it. So she had to plan a bunch of other stuff to do in Ethiopia uh, for her TV show. Because what if the volcano didn't work and she had nothing to give to the TV people? She would be, yeah, again, no one would no one would want to fund her again. So, um, but yeah, I, I was able to rig it. I had multiple different ways of anchoring and they all got used. Some was, I had big rods drilled into the rock. I had... Uh, shaped some rock and slung it i had snow pickets that i jammed into rock and uh and i was able to test it and shock load it um over a safe area so i could tell that it would sustain the loads and then we went out and she went first across the lava and uh and did the world first and then i'm part of the the arrangement i went with her is that i go second so i was the second to go across because you yeah, got to so, do it. I mean, you're there. You got to do it. I was there. And normally I wouldn't, but she couldn't really pay me what I wanted to get paid for the expedition. So I said, well, as part of the thing was I'll get the sponsors because she tried to get sponsors, but people wouldn't sponsor her, which is understandable. But when I gave my credentials and what I've done in the past, I had no problem getting sponsors for this kind of activity where she didn't have the background. So I said, if I get sponsors, then anything they sponsor, I get to keep it. And if I can that that way, I'll build the heat suits, but I get to keep the heat suits because I'm building them and they're with my sponsors and I'll pay to get them sewn and stuff, but it's they're mine. So I still have the heat suits from that that I can use on future expeditions. Um, and yeah, that was part of the thing. So and, that, uh, and part of the thing was that I get to go second. So. And that that just got added to the Guinness Book World Records um, like a couple weeks ago. So. Wow. It, it was a new record. They, they started a whole new record, the longest Tyrolean traverse over lava, over an erupting volcano. And that's uh, was for Women's Day. They announced it in March. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, so, <laughs> you got to be a part of that big time. Yeah, so you got to be a part of that. And then, yeah, there's, there's all these other crazy um, expeditions that are going on behind the scenes that are in planning process. Whether they go or not is another question, but... Uh, yeah. So uh, I was going to say, you know, I did I did see on your Instagram a, a picture of uh, Antarctica and yes. something about maybe maybe something happening in the works, but you couldn't share much. What what can you share? Yeah. So I don't know what it's, I can it's share. Not, I, know, I, I promise it's not going to be another <laughs> volcano that you're going over. Well, you can't be too sure. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so. I've, this is another TV show or we're pitching another TV show or episode kind of thing. There's a few things going on with TV, but this was a TV show we're pitching and it requires an expedition to Antarctica. So 
um, mountain climbing is involved and all this stuff and climb mountains that haven't been climbed before, um, all this sort of thing. So it's a pitch. So we can't really talk about it too much because we don't want someone to, you know, piggyback on that and steal the idea or something or try to get there before us and climb whatever we're climbing. Um, but uh, yeah, definitely not cheap expedition to Antarctica. So we do need, it looks like we're going to need sponsorship on that one. So what we, we need another Richard Branson that wants to join our expedition and help fund it. And uh, we have a few, I have a few other expeditions too. A lot of them just need like a great, all these different ideas of different volcanoes and different places around the world, but they really just need funding to do. And heat suit designs for even crazier heat suits that can get even better closer to the lava. But again, everything requires the money. And my small rock climbing company does not make enough money to fund those things. So I, I'm always relying on either TV production to help give the money or uh, someone that is a little more wealthy and has a bit more disposable income that wants to do some crazy thing and they have they they're willing to pay some money instead of going to like Everest, they can spend that money and do a, a volcano or something. So, um, yeah. Super exciting. Super exciting. Well, is, was there anything else you wanted to share? I know you, you kind of wrapped it up kind of quick, but, um, I've got a hard stop at, at four for sure, but I, I'd love to ask you or let you share anything that, that you thought would be interesting to talk about with, with either the, the volcano or the first expedition, just walking across fire in general, what that's like, um, how scary that is compared to other types of, of zip lining. Yeah. Um, so the things I've been doing, yeah, lately I've been really involved in the heat and the fire and the lava and I don't find it, it's definitely scary. The, the volcanoes are terrifying, like to go there and be that close to an erupting volcano or be in it. Um, sometimes we've even, I've even slept in a erupting volcano for three weeks in Venonatu. Um, and when you get close to the lava, it's quite terrifying. You feel very tiny. Um, and just the atmosphere at those volcanoes is so inhospitable, like the air you breathe, it burns your lungs and, uh, things, um, will rust. Like even stainless steel will start rusting immediately in those environments. Oh my gosh. Um, so like my titanium watch has like corrosion on it from acid, from the acid rain. Um, so when it rains and, and some of the, if it rains near a volcano, the rain goes through the acid cloud or the, the acid cloud and turns the rain to sulfuric acid. So you're literally being rained on with sulfuric acid. Um, of course it's not 100% potency, but it's quite high. It's high enough that you feel it burning your skin. Like it, it chemically burns you. Um, it burns your eyes. Um, it feels like someone's flicking aftershave at you after you've shaved, like that kind of stinging feeling, but you'll get it everywhere, anywhere it touches. So just, it's such a unique environment and, uh, it's just, yeah, it's, it's very strange to be there. Sometimes the wind in the volcanoes is strong enough. It picks up like small, like marble sized rocks and starts throwing them around. So you're, you can get like pummeled by rocks in the volcano by wind. It's, 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 uh, every volcano seems different, but none of them really seem very friendly. Like you're not supposed to be there, which makes it really exciting for me. Cause I thrive on that. So the wind's strong and it's throwing rocks around. I'm like, this is awesome. It hurts, but it's pretty cool that you can look at the ground and you see rocks flying across the ground like you would see snowflakes flying across the ground. And if you don't mind me asking, how did you ensure that it was safe, like the the, the ropes and all the equipment was safe in that environment? Um, do you mean um, from the chemicals itself? Yeah, just from the heat, the chemicals, and just making sure nothing was 
being overlooked in that sense. Yeah. So with the chemicals and heat, um, heat we, we can keep track of with temperature probes. And we know the temperatures. We're using uh, Technora ropes or steel cables. Technora ropes, they I like to keep them at a temperature below 200 degrees Celsius, which is quite warm. So it's very it's quite easy to keep them at a, a reasonable temperature. Um, if they're over uh, a lava or something, obviously we have to probe and know the temperatures before we stretch them. Like over the pit of fire, we would rig the ropes at night, and then or we'd rig it right before we did the stunt. And then we would do it, and then we take the ropes down right away. And then the next day we'd rig it again, do more, take it down right away, just not to leave them up for a prolonged period of time. Um, but the the ropes do show signs of wear, like damage from the heat, um, almost like a nylon rope would show melting from. If you took a lighter, you'd see the sheath starting to melt. Same thing would happen with the Technor. You'd see. Uh, the, the change of the molecular structure of the material. It doesn't melt, but it turns hard. Um, but again, we try and keep the temperature so low that we don't have to worry about that. Um, aluminum and stainless steel and nylon. And nylon is really bad, the volcanoes. We try to stick with polyesters. Um, and they all have, We ha I have some sulfuric acid here that I can actually melt or kind of like dilute and I can actually test on on different fabrics and different metals and stuff and we pull test the equipment to know how what kind of damage when does it look what kind of damage does it require before it's not safe um, so usually at a volcano if you have all brand new gear you're good for maybe a month of exposure so four weeks of exposure before it's kind of time to retire it so it's kind of one of those things where you get in, you do what you need to do, you get out. And then half the time or a lot of the time, your gear may just be thrown out. Like it's almost garbage, which is really sad considering how expensive the stuff is. No kidding. Um, it's worth it though. You don't want to, you don't want to try to get a deal. Yeah, no. Well, when you see the, the, the aluminum beaners like peeling like an onion layers are coming off of it, you know, it's not. There's no way to salvage that one Holy cow. Um, or the, the stainless steels rust in. Um, so I did try to like I kept my pocket knife on my harness. I have a knife on my harness and that's not a safety thing. So I didn't it was I had three three weeks of exposure in a volcano and I didn't throw it out. So I'm like, well, it's it's a knife It just has to cut stuff. It's not. But it was funny because I pulled it out a couple months later to cut something. And I was literally cutting rope on the field and it's the blade snapped in half. It was like a stainless steel buck knife with a lockable blade. It locked open and locked close. And it was, you know, has a serrated blade. And when the serrated blade hooked on the rope and I was trying to cut it, it just snapped the knife in half, which was unbelievable considering how little force. I wasn't trying to pry Jeez. something open. I was just trying to cut a rope and it broke the knife. So just to, one of those reality checks is, you know, once you go take this stuff in this really inhospitable environment, it's pretty much you don't try to reuse it. Um, and the more it rains or the wetter the environment, the worse, because the, the gases react with moisture and that creates the sulfuric acid. So there's, if there's no moisture, there's no sulfuric acid. Um, that's why your eyes burn because there's moisture your, and the gases mixes the water in your eyes and creates sulfuric acid in, in your lungs, uh, in your sweat, you start, your sweat literally turns into acid on your skin. It's very strange. Um, wow. but, uh, it's not to the point where you can't survive there. It's just not friendly and you don't like to be there. And some people break it with really bad rashes everywhere. And you're like, you got to get them out. Um, I had one day where I was rigging 14 hours in the volcano, uh, several, 
like we're sleeping in the volcano, but then we rigged and we did some zip lines like 600 feet deeper into the volcano. And I was down in there and it started to rain in. But once you start, you got to keep going. And the rain, I guess I was rigging above my head and I guess I had my uh, wrist straps really tight on my wrist, but water still seeped down and it went down into my armpits and it totally burned my armpits. Oh my gosh. Like, like chemically burned them because the skin's more sensitive there. So I was, I never, I was down there for like, eight hours the whole time like oh my armpits are so sore but i couldn't do anything because it's still raining out and i'm in a volcano and everything's like i can't do anything i just had to suffer until i finally got back to camp and had like baby wipes i could like wipe my armpits with and then there they were like you could see the chemical burn on them for weeks later not like hospitalizing you but you definitely you're not you're not always enjoying yourself in there sometimes like you can suffer some but yeah very very cool just to be there like just being there, I feel really privileged. Just when I'm there watching the lava explode, I'm just like, wow, just being here is a pillar. Just seeing this is awesome. And then being able to bring something that no one else has done before is even better. Like it's, it's really, really special. Such a unique thing that you're doing. Excited to see what this next adventure is too. Yeah. I really appreciate Where can people find out more about you? Uh, so our website for our, our my one company is oneaxpursuits.com. And uh, so you can follow us, uh, check out our website. We also do really cool adventure team building. If you're part of a bigger team, we have all the big banks and cell phone companies and like pharmaceutical companies. A lot of them use us for a really adventurous, unique team building programs. Um, plus all our rock climbing and ice climbing programs are there. And then on that website, there's also a link to the film and stunt page, which has some real cool pictures of behind the scenes, scenes, scenes stuff I've done with green screens or lava or urban buildings for movies and TV shows. So oneaxpursuits.com and then um, on social media, oneaxpursuits as well. But I do have a oneax extreme website and a oneax extreme on social media that I kind of try to update when I get a chance. But most of the stuff is like top secret. So you can't share anything, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. You, hey, you found a way to turn an adventure sport passion into a career. That's that's really cool. Very hard to do. Um, but yeah, you've done it. So congratulations, 20 years in, 20 something years in. So, well, great. Well, Frederick, I I appreciate it. And and we'll let you know when this comes out. And uh, yeah, this was awesome. Thank you. Awesome. It was nice, nice chatting with you. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.